Amen. You may be seated. Well, I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, we're looking at verses 2 through 9 this morning. I wonder if you've ever had a, a panic attack. All of us know something, I think, about anxiety. We might even know a few tricks uh, for dealing with it. But I wonder how many of you have experienced anxiety to such a degree that you literally thought you were going to die. Uh, it, it's estimated that 2 to 3% of Americans have panic disorder at some point in their lives. And although I haven't experienced anxiety to that degree, Pierce Taylor Hibbs has, and he writes about it in his book, Struck Down But Not Destroyed. It's a highly praised book, one that I've had several friends mention is worth reading. And I want to read a, a fairly lengthy quote from the intro, or from the first chapter, uh, regarding his story. Uh, his anxiety disorder began to develop at the age of 20 after his father died, but it got dramatically worse a few years later, and he tells the story like this. He says, I was back at college waiting on the curb outside of the dormitories for my girlfriend at the time, Christina, who is now my wife. I remember the comfortable evening air hanging over the campus as I took in the smell of fresh-cut grass and a hint of smoke from a nearby cigarette. A wave of heat crept down from my head and rushed through my back and legs. My breath grew shallow, my throat closed up, and I couldn't swallow. As she walked toward me, I struggled to stand up in a world that now felt like a great spinning ball. Um, I'm having a panic attack. I didn't even know what that meant. I just knew I needed help, fast. I begged her to drive me to the hospital, thinking there would be some consolation in that, but every step I took towards the car added tension in my chest and shoulders. Within a matter of seconds, the whole world looked black and foreign and terrifying. I knew it as soon as we started driving. I was going to die. Right here, in this car, on the way to a hospital in Hershey, Pennsylvania. This was it. I'd love to tell you that I met that moment with resolve, but that would be a lie. I wasn't brave. I was paralyzed with panic. Something very bad seemed to grip my whole mind and body and squeeze. The next 20 minutes were hell on wheels. A few miles into the car ride, I started yelling and calling out for help, moaning and grasping for air. An 18-wheeler churned down the dark country road ahead of us. Can you go around him? It's a double line. Christina was crying, but I couldn't think about calming down for her sake. Panic makes you blind and deaf to anything except your own preservation. With the little air I had in my lungs, I yelled, please just go around him. She pushed the pedal to the floor, both of us hoping that no one was around the bin in the opposite lane. I took up my phone and dialed 911. I'll never forget that conversation with the operator. 911, what's your emergency? Yeah, I'm having a panic attack and I can't breathe. Okay, sir, can you tell me where you are? I'm in the car on my way to the hospital in Hershey. 
So you're already on your way to the hospital? Yes. All right. Well, we can't do anything if you're already driving to the hospital. My heart dropped. I paused for a long second. I was dying. This was really it. I gave up all reservations, no pride, no pretending to be okay, complete vulnerability. Okay, well, can you at least pray for me? Sir, if you're already on your way to the hospital, there's nothing I can do from here. But can you pray for me? Click. She hung up the phone on a dying 20-year-old. That was the first time in my life I really asked for prayer. It wasn't the sort of asking that I'd done before, the kind where you don't really care that much if the person prays or not. It wasn't prayer as a formality. This was real, earnest pleading. It was lifeline begging. It was all I had, a voice and a question. And even in that moment of raw panic, I was thrown by someone's refusal to pray. Maybe she didn't believe in prayer or in God. Maybe she was just embarrassed or indecisive. I'll never know, but it brought my crushing that night to a new low. I know that was long. It's the longest section I've ever read <laughs> from a quote. But I think uh, if, if you deal with this sort of thing, this, this level of anxiety, um, then you can relate to that story. And I think for those of us who can't, we need, we need someone to be able to tell the story, and, and Pierce Hibbs does it well. But as Paul is bringing his letter to a close here, we catch a glimpse that not everything is joyful and peaceful in Philippi. Right? Joy has been and it remains the theme throughout this letter. We'll see it again in verse 4 twice, the passage that we'll be looking at this morning. But just maybe the reason for this constant reminding of the people to rejoice reveals a growing threat of shared anxiety within the community. And that's not to say that Paul is covering up their root problem. He will address the conflict. He'll even name names in this passage, but his purpose is to give them positive commands to live out the virtues that he knows they possess, that he has seen in them when he was with them. His love for them compels him to exhort them to persevere through these trials. And so the Philippians as he said at the very end of our passage last week in verse 1 of chapter 4, to stand firm, the Philippian church will stand firm regardless of the details of their present trial as they follow Paul's example and practice what they witness in his life and doctrine. You see him suggesting this back in chapter 3, verse 17. Right? He sets himself as an example. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And then at the end of the section we'll look at this morning, verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So he's setting himself up as an example, not just by the way he lived among them, but the way, what he taught them. To do. And this whole letter, in fact, is an example of his teaching. It's an example of him living out the instruction that he gives them in this passage. So we experience crushing anxiety because there's a God who wants to communicate with us. And so those who commune with the God of peace will enjoy the peace of God. That's what we'll see this morning. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage to remind us, Lord, where we can find peace. Lord, we need to become people of prayer. We need to depend upon you and to trust in you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would set our minds at ease, set our hearts at ease. Help us to remove those distractions that even now threaten to steal the message that you have for us this morning. Help us to understand with clarity what you're calling us to, that we would be able to have eyes to see that truth, open our ears to hear this truth, soften our hearts, that we would respond in obedience. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, if you're following along in your outline, the first point is this, peace through conflict, verses 2 through 3. The number one reason that missionaries leave the field is because of interpersonal conflict within the team. They don't typically run out of money or burn out from the challenges of living in a foreign culture. The main reason they return home is due to an inability to get along with their fellow missionaries. Paul knows the inevitability of conflict. He dealt with it himself in a disagreement with Barnabas over who should go along with them on their second missionary journey. And that conflict resulted in their separating, going separate ways. You can read about that in Acts 15. So Yodia, Yodia, and Syntyche were probably prominent figures in the church in Philippi. It's possible that they were among the group of women praying uh, by the river when Paul first visited Philippi and established the church there. You can read about that in Acts 16, verse 13. That's, that's who he first comes a- across, is this group of women praying, and it's there uh, with this group that he begins the church there in Philippi. 
So we don't know if they were there, but I mean, if they were prominent figures, it's very possible that they were there. And at the very least, it appears that this public feud, I mean, Paul's writing them a letter that's to be read to the whole church, and so everyone in the church knew about this feud. And it was beginning to disrupt the unity of the body, and probably had been doing so for some time, enough for the word to get back to Paul, and continuing long enough for him to know that writing this letter to them would get to them before it was settled. And so probably, or possibly, Epaphroditus had filled him in on the details during his visit. But the conflict was likely growing beyond just these two women, so that others were beginning to take sides. Think about this. If future generations could remember one thing about you, what would you want it to be? That's, that's nice, isn't it? That thing that you have in your mind. Now, what would it actually be? We, we know nothing else about these women. But the fact that they were in a serious conflict. And now I'm certain that Yodia and Syntyche had no clue that their personal spat would be memorialized in Scripture for all to wonder about. But unfortunately, their situation's not remarkable. We all know this. It's, it's typical. In the local church, in local churches around the world, unaddressed conflict oftentimes leads to detrimental consequences of division. And Paul is warning about that here. So happy Mother's Day. Right? You, you thought I forgot about that. Well, following in the pattern that many Father's Day sermons follow, our theme this year is women, get your act together. I'm just kidding. Unfortunately, that is the common theme among Father's Day sermons. This isn't a Mother's Day sermon, Bo, that it, though it does obviously relate, and, and the conflict between these women could have been between two men. Could have been between anyone, frankly. So we want to understand the details behind this verse, right? We have a lot of questions for Paul. Maybe when we get to heaven, we'll, we'll see Yodia and Syntyche talking with Paul, saying, did you have to include our names in that letter? We want to know who to blame. Instead of, uh, of having any details really about this, all we know is that they were co-laborers alongside Paul in the work of gospel ministry. They, they're listed here with Clement as members of the missionary team. We don't know how long. We don't know if it was just there in Philippi. But obviously, it seems like they stayed there. So in all likelihood, they were among the missionary team while Paul was there in Philippi, working alongside him to plant this church. So Paul reminds them that all of their names are written in the book of life. Yodia and Syntyche will spend eternity together. They ought to learn to get along with one another now. There's a commentator brought up this verse. It's, it's an unknown author. But it says, To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, now that's a different story. Right, who, who was offended? 
What was it that caused the offense? Is one of them right and the other wrong? Does one of them need to repent in order for reconciliation to take place? We simply don't have enough details to answer these questions. Whatever the reason for the differences between these two women, for the sake of the gospel, it's important that they reach resolution, that they experience a reconciliation. And so Paul calls upon them to agree in the Lord. And some have, have said that that agree in the Lord uh, really is an alternative to agreeing with one another. In other words, you may not agree with each other, but you should at least agree in the Lord. I, I think that's not accurate. Agree in the Lord, it, it seems to be a synonym for agreeing with one another. In fact, it, it literally means have the same mind in the Lord. Okay, so Paul in, is, is telling them to agree with one another because they are in the Lord, because they're united to Christ. That will require some repenting and some forgiveness, possibly on both parts, possibly just on one, we don't know. But either way, both of them should be pursuing reconciliation. Paul also instructs his true companion to help mediate the conflict resolution. And it's been suggested that this true companion is one of several names. One reference is, uh, is that it's Syzygus, which would just be the literal Greek word for companion. Some suggest that's, that's the name, and, and so he's saying, you know, be true to your name, Syzygus. The problem with that is there's no one else named Syzygus that we know of in history. Um, and so it's probably someone, uh, a particular person that he has in mind, Timothy, maybe Epaphroditus, Lydia, who would have been there, obviously, in Philippi, or even Luke. Some have suggested it's, a, it's just a generic reference to the whole church. Um, it does seem safe to say that he's calling upon an influential elder or an overseer of the church to step in. That would be my guess, and so I, I actually lean toward it being Luke, but uh, that's a total guess. There, there may even be a, a sting of rebuke here. It's almost like he's saying, why haven't you, true companion, already stepped in to deal with this? But anxious thoughts, they're, they're common, right, regarding interpersonal conflict. Those who deal with anxiety, oftentimes it surrounds things like conflict like this, interpersonal conflict. But what we learn from this passage is that the peace of God is offered as the antidote, not only to your anxiety, but also to your conflict. While conflict is inevitable, the gospel brings peace. So conflict is the means God will use to bring about a fuller unity within the church. And for the good of the gospel, we seek to resolve conflict within the church, and in the end, we're strengthened by that resolution. God uses it for the good of his church to strengthen us. That doesn't excuse the sin that, in, that involved getting us there, but the repentance that follows and the reconciliation that takes place makes us stronger for it. And so the lack of 
resolution in these matters inhibits the work of the church as a whole. Personal conflict can quickly lead to corporate division. How many churches have split because two individuals could not resolve a difference of opinion? It happens all the time. And so it is because both of these women belong to the Lord that they needed to seek unity among one another. And like Christ, they must humble themselves, putting the needs of others above their own as we considered in the example of Christ in Philippians 2. So the same gospel that has the power to reconcile a holy God to sinful man can surely accomplish the easier task of reconciling sinful man to sinful man. It's the same hope that we look to to resolve this conflict, and we should be seeking to resolve conflict for the same reasons that we seek to promote the gospel, because it magnifies the work of God's Son. And so we must do it in the same manner, with faith and repentance. We trust that God will bring about a result that brings him the greatest glory. And that trust is exemplified in our prayers, and that's what we'll see in this next section, verses 4 through 7, peace through prayer. These, are, these verses teach us how to experience peace in our circumstances, in every circumstance. Right? We are to pray. But before getting there, once again, the role of rejoicing is never far from Paul's mind. Look there at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. This is a deep-seated joy. Right? It, it, this joy steals us for any conflicts that we might need to deal with. Joy also encourages a reasonableness. Another translation of that might be forbearing or a generous spirit or being tolerant of others. It's especially pertinent when you're dealing with someone who might be difficult or that you might have difficulty with. And so rejoice and let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. This, this could refer to his nearness, as many of the Psalms indicate, right? His, his imminence, his presence, that he's everywhere. But I do think it probably refers to Christ's return. It's, it's a common um, phrase in, in the New Testament. You can see that in James chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. It actually de- deals directly with these same themes here. But Paul previously addressed the importance of having our eyes set upon Christ and the work that he will complete upon his return. That's, that's the theme at the end of chapter 3. And so he's continuing with that same idea. Let the, the coming Christ, the return of Christ, be something that, that, that compels us to take these to heart, to consider these truths more earnestly. These are exhortations. They remind us of our brief life. That is to be lived in light of eternity, with eyes set on glory. And so if you're always rejoicing with that anticipation, an anticipation in heaven, then nothing will make you anxious. That's what he says there in verse 6. And do not be anxious about anything. So it's especially true in light of the fact that we can bring our 
worries to the Lord in prayer. Paul's not encouraging us to recite everything that worries us. He suggests that in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. So this isn't about taking, you know, taking time uh, to, to simply recite all of your worries to the Lord. It's not worrisome praying. This is typical praying of the saints. Bringing your supplications with thanksgiving to the Lord. That, of course, will include casting your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. But the idea is that prayer, in its biggest sense, is the solution. Prayer in all of its formats, in our adoration, our confession, our thanksgiving, our supplication, all of it is a means of eliminating worry from our lives. If you want to experience less anxiety, pray more. It's one area, right? or, or, or this is a question, is it just one area in particular that fills you with worry? Maybe this is just one theme that comes up all the time that you always get worried about. Well, in everything, pray. So Paul, Paul states it positively in the next verse, in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It is through prayer that your anxiety is replaced with the peace of God. Peace guards your hearts and your minds from spiraling downward into further anxiety. There's a difference here between feeling anxious and thinking anxious thoughts, but the two go together. Your feelings and your thoughts, they feed off one another, springing from the desires of your heart. And prayer is what brings the peace of God which guards your hearts and your minds. And it guards, it, guards them like a, a Roman sentry would have guarded the city of Philippi. John Bunyan illustrates this in his novel, The Holy War, when he describes the appointment of Mr. God's Peace to patrol the town of Mansoul. When Mr. God's Peace was in office, the town experienced harmony, happiness, joy, and health. But his presence was fully dependent upon the presence of Prince Emmanuel. You could not have one without the other. And so we mustn't get the impression that this is, is merely referring to an internal sense of peace. This has peace in its broadest categories. Peace with God, peace with one another, peace internally as well. Through Jesus Christ. This peace is not merely offered to individuals, but it's offered to the corporate body of believers Paul has not transitioned at this point from an interpersonal conflict to internal conflict. Listen to the, the parallel way, way he says the same idea to the church in Colossae. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. 
again, same, same themes here. Peace here is, is, is much broader than just internal peace. It incorporates that as well, but it's, it's something that's meant for the entire body to experience. And so anxiety even may be the means that God uses to bring us into a fuller communion with him in prayer. It is through prayer that we engage with our Heavenly Father. And that means we can commune with God in every circumstance, through every trial. And the peace that results will benefit everyone involved. Those who have been justified by faith have peace with God, Romans 5.1. And it is through the blood of his cross that God has made peace possible, Colossians 1.20. Again, directly related to the gospel. Paul's not suggesting that we simply paper over our anxiety with a superficial mask of peace to give a superficial grin when we're around those that, that discourage us. He is, he is recommending a new way of thinking which he elaborates then in verses 8 and 9. We'll, we'll close with these verses. The battle for the mind is, is really not all that complicated. But whatever you feed your mind will result in emotions, which then lead to actions. And so you experience greater peace when you learn to think differently. That's the third point in your outline, peace through thought. Peace through thought. Frankly, it should be abundantly clear to everyone who has experienced the last 14, 15 months that filling our day with news regarding coronavirus and politics will have an adverse effect upon our peace. When you go from one news article or program to the next, it's, it's difficult to enjoy personal peace and quiet. And, of course, that inner tension spills out into our relationships, creating discord and division. And we've seen this play out daily in our nation. Paul's encouragement is that we, we fill our mind with something far superior. The virtues that he lists here, they oftentimes appeared in classical literature, though he, he doesn't mention the vices that typically follow. He does that in other places. You can look at Romans 1 for the list of vices. But here he's listing these virtues that we should set before our minds. They should become the object of our minds. Thomas Chalmers says the most effectual way of withdrawing the mind from one object is not turning it away on, upon desolate and unpeopled vacancy. In other words, you're not going to stop thinking about something by just telling yourself not to think about it and thinking about nothing. It's not going to happen. He goes on, but by presenting to its regards another object still more alluring. That's how you can stop thinking about something that's discouraging and upsetting and anxiety-causing. The way you turn away from that is you set something that's more alluring before your mind. So Paul could have, he, he could have really milked 
the concern that the Philippians had for him at this point. He could have revealed all the challenges that he had faced. Right? They, their concern for him was warranted. Spending years in house arrest while defending himself against attacks from opponents should have been deeply discouraging for him, but he knew how to focus upon something more alluring. And he's done so throughout this letter. He has modeled how to think about what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. Read and meditate upon the letter to the Philippians. And he concludes this passage with the encouragement from the Philippians to remember what they learned, received, heard, and seen in him. We don't have time to break down all of these words, but you get the idea. He's, he's calling them to think about the very things that he has been reflecting upon and meditating upon throughout this letter. So go back and reread it and meditate upon it and let it stir up your emotions so that you then act upon it, that you put those things into practice. The way we think ultimately leads to action. We put into practice whatever we believe. And so we will eventually move beyond contemplation and meditation to action. So distracted minds, they reveal the idols that, that must be destroyed by superior thought. Placing our minds upon superior objects. Paul had modeled how to do this through communion with God. Communing with the God of peace in prayer and through his word will leave an imprint upon your lives. And as we reflect upon the life, upon our own lives from a, a Christian worldview, our, our meditations will compel our thoughts to a higher view of God and his glory, which will lead us to praise him. And we see Paul doing that throughout this letter as well. His theology turns into doxology. And our praise will not be a distant or a distracted aspect, right? It, it won't be done with this thought of God being far away from us or with our minds completely distracted, but we'll be deeply emotionally invested and involved in worship. It involves our whole being. True worship cannot be manufactured simply by putting together the right combination of smells and bells. It's the result of following after good doctrine and good examples. And so I'll conclude with this. What Pierce Taylor Hibbs, I know that's the second time I've said that, but this is a genuine conclusion. What Pierce Taylor Hibbs learned about anxiety was that God could use it for his good. He began with the doctrine of God's sovereignty, and then he learned that God doesn't always remove our weaknesses, but he can use them to reveal the sufficiency of his grace and the perfection of his power, as we read in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. He learned patterns that freed him rather than imprisoned him. He developed the habit of reading the Bible and listening intently to the voice of God through his word. And he began to trust that the God of peace was always with him. He learned the priority of prayer and clinging to a Savior who was teaching him to see the world in entirely new ways. And all of this from someone who grew up in the church, who'd read his Bible, who had prayed before, 
So what's the point? God used, and he continues to use in his life, his struggles with anxiety to draw him into a faith that is deeper and wider than ever before. And you too can enjoy that peace which surpasses understanding through the power of the gospel. It will transform the way you deal with conflict. You'll learn to find peace through prayer and right thinking. And so let's ask the Lord to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for this reminder, Lord, that all of us need to hear in a life that is, it is filled with distractions, in a nation that is trying to constantly put some other object before us that is far inferior to the gospel, far less alluring. Lord, help us to carry our Bibles with us to be meditating upon these truths regularly, to be in prayer continually, or to have a, an attitude that is filled with gratitude for all that you've done. That we would be casting our anxieties upon you throughout the day, trusting in you, depending upon you, knowing that you are guiding us that you are providing for us. And Lord, we know that, that there is, that conflict is inevitable. We, we ourselves are fallen creatures living in a fallen world, tempted, as we were reminded this morning by Matt and his prayer, the, by, by the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so, Lord, we, we need to continually set before us thoughts that are far superior and more alluring than anything this world dangles before our eyes. May we be enamored by the gospel and may it transform us and may we pursue reconciliation with any whom we may be in conflict with. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand. Our hymn of response is Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Hymn number 429. Again, hymn number 429.